0: announcement I have is read your bulletins as I mentioned this morning, and you'll have all the announcements. All right? Let's take the Trinity hymn book and turn to hymn 402, that familiar hymn of John Newton's Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Hymn 402. Let's stand together as we sing. together this afternoon. Brother Dale would you lead us in that prayer please?
1: finish Ecclesiastes 7 this week. I uh, stopped at verse 14 last week, mainly because I wanted more time to (laughs) look at, I said verse 26, I actually misspoke, it should have been verse 28, about the woman, one in a thousand men, and no women. But uh, we'll get to that in a minute. I'd like to start with a reminder to us all that if you want wisdom, it's going to take work. I'll just remind you of what Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you so that you incline your ear to wisdom, apply your heart to understanding. We'll have that word heart again in this Uh, Reading chapter 7, our heart has to be engaged. Is your heart engaged? Yes. If you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding, there is prayer, earnest prayer from the heart. If you seek, there's the work, if you seek her as silver. I'm not a miner. I don't know anything about silver uh, mining, but I assume uh, anytime you... Dig its work and search for her as for hid treasures. Hid, key word, don't forget. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. the honor of kings to search it out. So let's be kings and search out. And that's what I was hoping to do. And I think I have uh, dug up a few clues to understanding um, the last... uh, six or seven verses of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. I wasn't sure uh, how to do this because when you stop at each verse, it kind of interrupts the flow uh, of the verses. So what I think I'll do is I'll just do a little quick verse by verse on starting at verse 23 and then to the end and then we'll uh, circle back. And do the reading, just read it as it flows on through. So he says there in 23, I tested all this with wisdom. I said I will be wise. So there's the heart. He's got, he's got the heart. But he immediately ran into a wall. It's far from me. It wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. So he, he doubles down, digs deeper, if you will. I turned my heart to know, to explore to seek wisdom and an explanation. There's one thing he sought. Now there's another thing. And to know the wickedness of foolishness and the folly of madness. So those two things. He wants to know wisdom. This this sounds like chapter 1 and 2, doesn't it? He was searching uh, to experience all these things. And First, he tells us his experience of the second thing spoken of in verse 25, which is the wickedness of folly. He found it in the woman. I found more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. So he's talking about the harlot, the whore, and he would know the foolishness <clears> of <throat> of going in unto her. He speaks of it extensively in in the book of Proverbs, doesn't he? About going into her. This is not talking about all women. It's not talking about women in general. It's talking about harlots. And so he says, I found her more bitter than death. See, I have found this. Remember from verse 23, he's seeking wisdom. And he wants to know an explanation. Don't underscore that word explanation in verse uh, 25. If you got King James, it's reason. It's the Hebrew word heshbon. It's a word that's only found three times in the Scriptures. And two of those times are in this chapter. And the other time it's found is in chapter 9, I think it is, of, of the same book. So it's an explanation that he is looking for. So see, I found this. Verse 27. Adding one thing to another. He found it by careful search. He didn't just read the first commentary and came to his conclusion. One by one by one. He searched for an answer. An explanation. Which my soul still seeks, but has not found (laughs) So, you see... I found it, but but not really. <laughs> well, sort of, I found it. I'm still seeking it. He, was, he, he seeks to find this explanation. And one by one, it reminds me of Paul's words, prove all things and hold fast to what's good. So he's looking uh, for this explanation. My soul still seeks, but has not found. I have found one man. The word is Adam or Adam. Out of a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. I think I misunderstood this for years. I thought he was just saying there's not one wise woman among a thousand people. And there's only one wise man. So it's kind of a misogynistic. Uh, <laughs> misogyny is uh, prejudice against women, even a hatred of women and some have read this and and thought Solomon that even if you did do that if you thought Solomon that you do know God is not misogynistic he doesn't hate women and anybody with eyes in their head can look around even in this room and can probably count more wise women than men I'm buttering you up but (laughs) it's still true (coughs) He's looking for an explanation. And in what we miss in the English language, I really wish it was this way, all the words in Spanish or in Hebrew have gender. And we miss this. Our language is kind of sterile in, in this sense. English is a rich language, don't get me wrong. You know, we have more synonyms <laughs> than any other language in the world probably. But, but it's sterile in this point that there's no gender. And this, I believe, is key uh, in verse 28. It's the gender of the explanation that he found. It was a masculine explanation uh, that he found. And now we're ready for verse 29. See, I have found only this. So we're back (laughs) on a high note. I found it. God made men upright. Man was created in innocency. God made him upright. I think we should add that to our catechism uh, for the children. Yes, God made man, but more importantly, or uh, more, yeah, more importantly, He made him upright. He made him innocent, without sin. And so here's where the difficulty comes in. That's why He's saying, "I found it. My still." seeks it. I haven't found it. Well, not quite. I'm almost there. God made men upright. Take that to the bank. That's the truth. But they, man, have sought out many uh, devices, inventions in the old King James. Schemes, uh, another way of putting it. Um, fig leaves. Way to cover sin. So, uh, I believe it's going back. He's harking back To the original creation. Remember in verse 24 he said, What's far away and exceeding deep? Who can find it? What is further away than creation? And what is deeper than the abyss of the universe that God has created? We cannot see to the end of it. So that's what he's looking for. And that's what he found. At creation, God made men upright. But what he can't figure out, how did sin... Get into the world. Men have sought out many devices. How is that? My soul still seeks that. So for what it's worth, let's now circle back to verse 15 and read it all the way through, uh, hopefully uh, with some help. Oh, one other thing I wanted to say about the word uh, heshbone there, uh, explanation. It's it's here twice uh, in this chapter. He's... um, 27 is the other uh, verse that we find that in. So he's seeking an explanation. So, explanation is what is masculine. It's the masculine, manly explanation of, of man. God made him. All right. 15. I have seen everything. During my days of vanity, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. There's a common theme uh, in this book. Do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why should you make yourself desolate? Do not be excessively wicked, and do not be a simple-minded fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you seize one thing and also not let go of the other, a balanced life in other words, for the one who fears God comes forth with both of them. Wisdom strengthens a man, wise man more than ten men with power who are in a city. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins, as in... uh, The Wisdom Book of Job, we have it again in this book, The Universal Sinnerhood of Men. Also, do not give your heart to all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your slave cursing you. For your heart also knows that you likewise have many times cursed others. I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been, talking about the past, as we've said, creation, what has been is far away and exceedingly deep. Who can find it? I turned my heart to know, to explore, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the wickedness of foolishness and the folly of madness. And I found, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is good before God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. See, I have found this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which my soul still seeks but has not found. I have found one man out of a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. See, I have found... Only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices.
0: Now before Micah comes to open the word of God, take your Trinity hymn books, turn to number two. Number two, in the Trinity hymn book, My King my might confessing. Number two. Let's stand together as we sing.
2: Good afternoon. It's good to worship our God and King together, isn't it? It's good to uh, come into His courts. I mean, I found it to be true in my life since He saved me that better, what the psalmist said, better is one day in Your house than a thousand elsewhere. Better is one day in the presence of the living God than a thousand days outside in the world. Um. And really, I think, I think that's what I want us to focus on as we study the attributes of God. It is a good thing to come into the presence of the Lord and to know our God, isn't it? But I want to start off today with a little bit of a theological calisthenics. Just to get our sort of mental juices flowing as we go into the Word of God together, I want to ask you a question that will get us along the right track as we contemplate the being of God together. If I were to ask you to give me a definition of God that totally encapsulates his being, what's the definition that you would give? Some, I've asked people this question, and some people say, Well, God is a spirit. Well, yeah, of course, God is a spirit. Is that all he is? There are good and bad spirits. There are spirits that are finite. There are spirits that have limitations. We have spirits. We have souls. We have an immaterial part to us. We are not God. Angels are spirits. So is a spirit all that God is? Or some might say, well, God is the creator of all things. Obviously, like that's, a, that's an easy question to answer. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First line, of God's word. Well, that's true. But is that all that he is? And if he didn't create, then would he cease to be God? Because if that is the fundamental definition of God, that he's a creator, then if He, what if he had chosen not to create? So that can't possibly be all that he is. Or some people might say, well, you know, the... The uh, Hebrews were told in their scriptures. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So God is one. There's only one God. So at his fundamental core, he is oneness. He is the, the one from whom all things exist. That's, that's true, too. That's, something that we, that's a true thing that we can say about God. But we come to the New Testament and the giving of the Son and the outpouring of the Spirit, and we recognize that he is three in one. So there must be more to say about God than the fact that he is one. Or some people might say that he's love, but what about his justice and holiness? Or some people might say that he's all-knowing, but what about his omnipotent power? Some people might say, well, he's all-powerful, but then what about his omnipresence? What about his infinity? What about his aseity? What about all of those attributes of God that we enumerate to describe him because he's the indescribable one? Hopefully this gets us sort of along the right track in saying there is no one thing that the creature can say about God that can encapsulate him and in fact you could say you could say thousands of things about God and it would not scratch the surface of who he is. And the the fundamental reality that I want us to sort of plant our feet in as we study the attributes of God is that he is the creator and we are creatures. He is the infinite one and we are finite. And the finite cannot understand, approach, or comprehend the infinite even more comprehensive definitions of god like we find in the baptist catechism in question 7 don't scratch the surface don't scratch the surface of a comprehensive definition of god the baptist catechism following the westminster confession of faith says in response to the question what is god that god is a spirit infinite eternal and unchangeable in his being wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth You've got to say amen to that. I think that might be one of the best definitions of God ever crafted by human minds from the Scriptures. However, not even that definition of God that has come to us through the centuries as people have contemplated the truths of God's Word and sought to mine out who He is, not even that definition can comprehend or encapsulate all that He is. Because the fundamental truth is that for creatures, as we begin to study the being and attributes of God, we are coming to something that is incomprehensible. We are coming to holy ground, as Moses did when he approached the burning bush. So in a certain sense, we have to take off our shoes. In a certain sense, we have to take off our shoes, and we have to understand that my mind can go a certain distance, and then it can go no farther. At a certain point, you come to the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look down and you don't see the bottom. Because God, in his fundamental being, is infinitely more glorious than any creature could imagine. The fundamental problem for us as we study the attributes of God is that we approach and we worship and we are saved and reconciled to a God who is not like us. And at first, that might sound off putting. At first, that might sound like bad news. It's the best news in the world. It's the best news in the world that God is nothing, is not like we are. And I hope that we'll see that as we spend time in His Word together today. So, this is also, this recognition that God is incomprehensible is also fundamental to the worship of God's people throughout the centuries. What is the second commandment? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, and I just want us to get a flavor for what God has said about Himself and about His incomprehensible glory and how that grounds how we approach Him. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. I'll give you a second to get there. By the way, this isn't going to be our main text today. Our main text is going to be Exodus 33, but I just want us to get a flavor for some of the backdrop of this message. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then what's the reason that he gives? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So he is so jealous for his own glory. He himself, in his own essence, is so incomprehensible glory, incomprehensibly glorious. And he is so jealous for the manifestation of that glory. And for us to delight in that glory. That he says anything that you could create with your own two hands would be a detraction from it. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So this recognition that we serve a God that creatures cannot approach as a creature is fundamental to the worship of God's people from beginning to end. It's fundamental from the moment that God reveals himself to sinners. And I think... That we see the incomprehensibility of God and the tension that causes for Moses and the people of God in Exodus chapter 33. The incomprehensibility of God guards the Godness of God. There is nothing more fundamental to Christian theology than understanding that our God is not like us. That he's incomprehensible. And this is also a lesson that Moses learns in our text today. So Exodus chapter 33, we're going to start in verse 17. And we're going to read through almost the end of chapter 34. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall go and stand on the rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, cut yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up. In the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come with you and no one and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children. The third and the fourth generation, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So, the first thing that I want us to grasp as we come to this text and as we try to view the subject of God's incomprehensibility through this text is I think we need to grasp what Moses is actually asking for in this text. Because Moses makes a plain and a bold request from God. He says to God in verse 18, please show me your glory. But to get a little bit of background, Moses' desire to see God's glory is a result of the Lord's threat. Look at verse 2 of chapter 33. Chapter 33, verse 2. God says to the children of Israel after they've made the golden calf and been caught in idolatry, he said, I will send an angel before you And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites and go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff necked people. So God essentially is threatening the children of Israel. He's saying, Moses, take this, take the children of Israel and you go up to the land. And and even that I'll send an angel before you. And I'll give you victory in battle, in verse 2. I'll give you material blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'll give you rest from all of your enemies. I'll give you material wealth beyond what your senses can imagine. But I will not be there. You can go, I'll stay here. That's essentially what God is saying to his people. He's saying, your idolatry forfeits my presence. He's saying, if I were to go with you even for a moment, my presence would break out and destroy you because of your uncleanness. And obviously Moses intercedes and he foreshadows Christ in his intercession for us. And God's presence does end up going with them. But in order to get a flavor for what Moses is actually asking, we have to understand his plight before God first. It's an unbearable thought in the mind of Moses, that they should go up into the land that God had promised them and experience all those blessings but the presence of the living God wouldn't be among them because that is ultimately what made them distinct. It was God himself being their God and it was them being his people. It was the sense of belonging to the living King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what does that threat do in the mind and in the heart of Moses. It drives him deeper into God's presence to intercede on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people. The threat, Moses, the threat drives Moses deeper into the presence of God. And so I think what we, can, what we can say about the request to show me your glory is that Moses wants to see something more than he's already seen. Think about all of the glory that Moses has seen in his life. Think about all the glorious manifestations of God's power and love that Moses has witnessed with his own two eyes. Exodus chapter 3, he comes up to the burning bush and sees the angel of the Lord. He has this encounter with the living God where God says, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. He is the one who stood there terrified at that bush. He's also the one through whom God did mighty miracles. Exodus chapter twelve, verse twelve actually says that God demonstrates his glory and God went to war with the false gods of Egypt through the miracles that he did through Moses in pouring out those plagues on Egypt. God was declaring war on the idolatry of the Egyptians. God is manifesting that he is the only true and living God. He's manifesting his attributes. He's manifesting his own glory. And Moses Saw that and got to take part in it so but that's not that 's not all that Moses has seen. This is on the other side of the Red Sea. Moses stood on the shore of the Red Sea and watched as God suspended the laws of physics and made the water stand up on either side, and they walked through on dry ground and then he watched as God poured his wrath out on the Egyptians by swallowing them up in the Red Sea after the children of Israel had made it through safely. So God has shown Moses something of himself already. So what exactly is it that Moses is asking for when he says, show me your glory? It's almost like the audacity of Moses to ask this question. I mean, if I was being asked that question, I would, I would be like, what do you mean, show me, my, show me your glory? Haven't you seen enough? So Moses is asking for something more. And I think that the answer is that Moses has seen manifestations of God's glory. Moses has seen acts of God's power and love and steadfast faithfulness for his people. But now he's asking for the whole thing. He's asking, Lord, show me your glory. I want to stare into the very essence of the living God. I want to comprehend you. And I want to know you as you know yourself. That's what Moses seems to be asking in this text. He's asking to behold the full, unrefracted, unmediated essence of God with his very eyes. Moses wants to see God as God sees God. And he wants to know God as God knows God. And we know that he is asking this From God's answer. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. Essentially God's answer here is no. But he said. You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me. And live. That's what Moses is asking. He's asking not to see a manifestation. He's asking to see him. But this also propels Moses into a dilemma. So we have. <clears throat> so we have, under the last point, Moses' desire. What is Moses asking? Moses is asking to see and comprehend God's essence. So that's sort of where we're going here with incomprehensibility, just to keep us grounded in the topic. But we also see that this proposes a dilemma for Moses because God answers the question and says, No, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. In Hebrew cultures, to look into somebody's face was to know the essence of that person. It was the most intimate form of knowledge. God says, you can't see my face. You can't see my essence. You can't know me as I know me. The Lord's answer is in the negative. But, excuse me, but when we study the attributes, it's important to, to have this answer ringing in our ears. Man's finite eyes cannot behold God's infinite essence. Man's finite understanding cannot comprehend God's infinite being. The first thing that we have to know about God is that in his essence, he is incomprehensible and unknowable to creatures. That's the first thing that we have to understand. But this proposes a problem for us. Because if God is incomprehensible, then what's the purpose of any of this? If God is incomprehensible, then what's the purpose of us even studying the attributes? If God is incomprehensible, then what's the reason for preaching, where we're making God known to his people? What's the the reason for worship, or any of the things that we gather here to do? Do we not gather to worship a God that we've come to know? So there's this tension, you see. There's this tension between the incomprehensibility of God and the knowability of God. The incomprehensibility of God, even though it is good, for, good news for us, it would be a tragedy for us had not God Condescended to reveal himself to his creatures. And that's what I want to key in on as we study the attributes. I want to key in on the fact that God has condescended to us to make himself known to us. Even though he is incomprehensible in his glory, and even though we as creatures cannot know him as he knows himself, he has condescended to reveal himself to creatures from the dust. Even though the distance between God and creatures is an unbreachable chasm, God himself crosses that chasm in condescending love for us. And that is what we see in God's answer to Moses. Because God does answer Moses no, but then... In a way, also, he answers Moses, yes. He says, you cannot see my face, but you can see my back. He says, you cannot understand my essence, but I will enumerate my attributes to you and I will proclaim my name before you. I will make my goodness, I will make who I am pass before you. So, going from Moses' dilemma into God's declaration. This condescending love is shown in two aspects of this declaration that God makes to Moses. This revelation that he gives. Look at verse uh, 23. Verse 23 of chapter 33. Then, or sorry, starting in verse 22. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Take note of hand. Then verse 23. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What are all these things that God is using to describe himself? God is describing himself in this text in terms of hands and a back and a face. And he's saying, I'll, I'll hide you from my presence. Now, if we're thinking systematically and we're thinking in terms of all of Scripture, we know that God doesn't have a physical substance. God is a spirit. And he's, and he's everywhere all at once. So how is he saying, I'm going to cover you with my hand and you'll see my back, but my face you won't see? God doesn't have, literally, hands. And God doesn't literally have a backside. And God doesn't literally have a front side or literally have a face like I have it. But this, I think that this this question about him describing himself in terms of human body parts. I think that that is one of the ways that God condescends to reveal himself to Moses in this text. Because in this strange way of speaking, he's speaking about himself as if he were a man like us. That's one of the ways that God condescends to reveal himself to us. And you see this all throughout scripture where God will describe himself as if he were one of us so we can understand something about him that would be unknowable otherwise. And that's going to be a big thing when we study the attributes. God is going to describe himself, even though he is the creator, infinite. He's going to describe himself over and over again in creaturely terms. Genesis chapter 12, verse 5, when the the, the people make the Tower of Babel, it says, The Lord came down to see the Tower of Babel. Now, did God have to come down anywhere to see what they were doing at the Tower of Babel? No, of course, of course he didn't. God is everywhere all at once and he's all knowing and he's all seeing. So God didn't have to come down from heaven in order to see what the people were doing at the Tower of Babel. But this language is used in scripture in order that we might understand something about God and what he does. He's condescending to our creaturely level of understanding. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6 says something similar. It says the Lord will make his face to shine upon you. What does that mean? Well, ultimately that means that the Lord's blessing presence, his salvific presence will be with you. But he describes himself in terms of human beings or he describes himself in terms of creatureliness so that we can understand that. Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, God stretched out his hand. Over and over again, what do we see in the Scriptures? We see, regarding salvation, that it says that the arm of the Lord is stretched out. Or oftentimes, God is talked about as the one who rides on the clouds in the Old Testament. Now, God doesn't literally ride on the clouds. He doesn't literally have an arm that stretches out. But we understand intuitively what the Scriptures mean by these things. We understand that God is describing himself as if he were one of us in order that we might comprehend something of who he is. So that's the first thing that I want us to understand. God condescends in the bodily language, or here's the the big word that describes it, anthropomorphisms. God condescends to us in that kind of language in the scriptures so he can make his infinite and incomprehensible essence. Known to creatures who are on the other side of this chasm. And then <clears throat> not only is there that element where God describes himself in terms of a face and back and hands, but God also says, "I'm going to declare my name and my name before you, and I will cause my goodness to pass before you. Look at verse 18. Moses says, "Please show me your glory." And then verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. So God doesn't just show Moses a manifestation of his glory in terms of what Moses sees. So Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock, and he sees this awesome display of who God is. But he also, God also condescends to make his being and attributes known to Moses as well. Verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name before you, the Lord. This part of God's declaration is actually the only part that's repeated in chapter 34. Oftentimes people, when re- they read this passage, they focus on what Moses saw. Because Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is shining with the glory of God. So the emphasis is naturally on what Moses saw in this theophany as God hides him in the cleft of the rock, covers him with his hand, and he sees God's back as he passes by. That's often the emphasis that you get on this text. But this text in chapter 33 is promising the event. When the event is actually recorded in chapter 34, nothing whatsoever almost is said about what Moses actually sees. All of the emphasis is on what he hears about God. And I think that's key for us knowing God. And I think that God inspired that that way for a reason. Look at chapter 34 starting in verse 5. So in 33, the event was promised by God. In chapter 34, this is the event actually happening. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God, the emphasis is on what God says as he passes by Moses. And in the first place, in verse 6, we have him declaring his name, the Lord, the Lord. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that this word for God, or this name for God, the Lord, that's in all caps in your Old Testament, it's actually hearkening back to Exodus chapter 33 when Moses, or Exodus chapter 3, when Moses says, Who should I tell the Israelites? Who Who should I tell them sent me? And he says, I am that I am. This is God's covenant name for the people of Israel. But it's also the name that denotes his transcendence. It's the name by which he is distinguished as the true God, Yahweh, the Lord. It is the name by which he is known as the incomparable and independent and eternal one. It is the name by which he says, I am God and you are not. But we see from Exodus chapter three and then onward in our Old Testaments that it's also God's condescending covenant name. He is whenever God repeats this name to the children of Israel, what he is saying to them is the one that you can't comprehend, the one whom you cannot compare to anything else is your God because he's covenanted himself to you. Every time you read that name in the Old Testament, that's what you should be reading. You should be reading this God who is incomprehensibly glorious. The only way to truly describe him is to just say that he is. That God is my God because he's condescended to me in covenant love. And then that's also what we see. So we have his name of transcendence, which is also his covenant name. But we also have an enumeration of his attributes here. Look at some of the attributes that are declared by God himself. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's as if he is saying that he will make his, the character content of that transcendent name known. And then through the entire storyline of Scripture, He puts these attributes on display over and over again. Look at that uh, attribute: abounding in steadfast love. Do you understand how much of God's attributes are just packed into that one, or that those two words? His steadfast love is His unfailing, unchanging, omnipotent determination to do good to His people. So you have so many attributes just packed into that one little statement. But I think that we would be remiss if we didn't notice that we have something better today than Moses had when he was showed this vision. Moses has the glory of God condescend, and he has a disclosure of who God is to himself. Because even though God is transcendent, he delights to make himself known, and we see that in this vision. And we see that specifically in these attributes that he shows to Moses. But we have something better today. Moses had a manifestation of glory so bright that he had to be hidden from its brilliance. Moses had God verbally enumerate his name and attributes, and even that was enough to invoke worship from Moses. Look at what Moses does after he sees this. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. When he hears who this God is, he falls in the dust. (laughs) But Moses approached God in the brilliant light of that theophany or that appearance of God. We approach God today in the brilliant light of all of these attributes that have come in the flesh in the person of his Son. That's the God that we worship today. It's the same God, but now his character has been made even more crystal clear because not only has he said these things about himself, he has come in the flesh himself in the person of Jesus Christ turn to Matthew chapter 25 or Matthew chapter 11 verses 25 through 27 because Jesus touches on God's incomprehensibility and yet knowability as well I'll give you a second to get there Verse 25, Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So what does Jesus say about the incomprehensibility of God? He says, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Father except his Son who has dwelt with him for all eternity. No one knows the Father except the eternal Son who is himself the very essence of the Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. So we see that there is this infinite, transcendent, and incomprehensible knowledge and love between Father and Son. And that knowledge and love is what has come in the flesh in Christ. Because look, there's also the disclosure of this reality in the Son. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to Him. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to disclose the nature of the Father to us in a more brilliant and clear way than had ever done before. Moses saw something on that mountain, and Moses heard God's name and his attributes on that mountain. We've come face to face with them in Christ because he's revealed himself to us. God has revealed himself in in the person of his Son and made his attributes clear to us, made his being clear to us by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin and on that cross condemning sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. We see the totality of who God is shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what we will see for all of eternity. That reality that we've come to in part now is what will captivate our minds forever and ever. We will behold his face. We will see Father shining in the Son, and the Son in the Father, and the Holy Spirit that indwells the Son and indwells us as well, uniting us to him. We will enjoy all of who God is for all of eternity. In the person of Christ. So that's who God is. And that's where I want us to go from here. I want us to be careful with how we speak about God. In this study. Because God is incomprehensible. But we can be encouraged because he is knowable. Because he's disclosed himself to us. That's part and parcel of the good news of the gospel. Is that God is not silent. He's revealed himself to you in the incarnate God man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh we're thankful that we belong to you and your son. We rest on his grace. We rest on his merits. We rest on his work. We know that we can only approach your throne because he is the propitiation for our sins, suffering in our place, dying for our, dying in our place and rising in our place. We thank you that we come before you not as people who are trying to be cleaned up. We don't come before you as people who are trying trying to do good enough or trying to earn the reward. We come before you as people for whom Christ has earned the reward. We thank you for him. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. That's new every morning. Pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.
0: such a God placed before us. Take your Trinity hymn books in closing and turn with me to number 23 in the Trinity hymn book. O light that knew no dawn that shines to endless day. Now we'll be singing this to the tune of Arise My Soul Arise. If you want to see the music, it's on page 223. But in singing this to this tune, we will repeat the last stanza. So we'll sing it once, and then we'll sing it again as we come to the last stanza. So hymn number 23, sung to the tune of 223, Arise, My Soul, Arise. And stand together as we sing.